Hello and welcome to episode three of the Horn Call podcast. My name is James Bolden. I'm your host and the publications editor for the International Horn Society. Now, in uh, the intro to episode two, I realized I rambled on for far too long, so I'm not going to do that to you this time. I just want to make a couple of quick points uh, about various things uh, related to my uh, job with the IHS, and we will get to our awesome discussion today with the very talented uh, Gina Gilly. Uh, The first thing is, if you have not had a chance to go check out the offerings on the IHS virtual workshop, uh, please do that as soon as you can, because the time uh, that those are going to be available is limited. They aren't going to stay up forever. but it is a really awesome collection of some great presenters and clinicians. And uh, as you probably know by this point, the 52nd International Horn Symposium, which was slated to be held at the University of Oregon, had to be canceled because of COVID-19. But um, in lieu of that, a very, very awesome digital workshop was put together on fairly short notice by uh, Dan Phillips, Jeff Snedeker and Lydia Van Driel. So uh, be sure to go check that out. Uh, you must be an IHS member and logged into hornsociety.org. Speaking of being an IHS member, uh, you probably have uh, received, if you if you haven't yet, you probably will very soon, your physical and or digital copy of the October 2020 issue of The Horn Call. And I encourage you to take a look at all of the articles in there. Um, We worked very hard, uh, the editorial team, uh, on putting together the October 2020 issue. Uh, Of course, uh, I have to give it up again for my predecessor, Bill Scharnberg, who put in place um, such a a great system of of getting things together for the Horn Call. So um, without further ado, I want to uh, introduce my next guest for episode three. She is a multi-talented composer, performer, teacher. Her name is Gina Gilly. She teaches at Pacific Lutheran University in Washington State, and uh, I feel honored and privileged to be able to have a discussion with her. Uh, She's a good friend of mine, a colleague, and uh, we've known each other for quite some time. We first met when we were in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison quite a number of years ago. We touch on some really fun, interesting, interesting topics that I think uh, are not only interesting for horn players, but um, for any budding composers and those looking to get into music publishing. So without further ado, here is my interview with Gina Gilly. And my guest today on the Horn Call podcast is Dr. Gina Gilly. Welcome. Thank you, James. We're so excited to uh, have you here. And where are you calling in from? I am in Puyallup, Washington. Okay. And that's near Tacoma, right? Near Tacoma, 40 miles south of Seattle. Okay. Awesome. So I I think... um, Probably a good place to start is where I've started with the last couple of guests on the podcast is just what you've been up to during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and, you know, we can kind of start back before March if you want, because you, your perspective on things is slightly different than, than someone who has been typically doing a ton of performing and then suddenly in March it all went away. You had been yeah. coming at this from a slightly different perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So there were 
two things that make my um, entrance into the pandemic a little bit different from someone else who was has been had been performing a lot and that is that I had had a pretty significant embouchure injury in 2016 that I'm still coming out of and so my playing really hadn't ramped up that much mm-hmm. prior to the pandemic and also that I've I've gotten much busier as a composer so was writing music and um, writing music is a very solitary adventure <laughs> and you're by yourself you're not around other people you're just making ideas and working with ideas by yourself at a piano and so when the pandemic came along it wasn't the same kind of effect as it was for a heavy performer um, because I was kind of already by myself doing my musical thing in my own space. So you wouldn't, you would, well, you wouldn't say that your day to day was necessarily that, that affected, right? Not as a musician. Now, as a, as a teacher, as a college teacher, the entire world was upended. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I assume like pretty much everyone else in, in the world, we, you went, completely online, right? For your lessons and and everything like that. Did that Mm -hmm. go pretty well as far as how your students and you adapted? I think that we adapted quite quickly. It wasn't uh, ideal for anyone, of course. And we would always say in the spring, how much we appreciated being in person. Sure. We, We would think about the things that we really enjoyed about being in person. And we can't wait to get back. To being in person but i think that all of my students adapted quite well one thing that i noticed was i was a was able to shift from focusing on things like tone production mm-hmm. to other things that you you could hear a little bit better over the really bad sound like i didn't have an external microphone and my students didn't have an external microphone right. at that point and so it would fade in and out and you couldn't really tell how the the uh, student's tone was really progressing. So we worked on a lot of other things and we did some really basic stuff. I even had a student who didn't have a horn. Oh my goodness. She had, she'd left her horn at PLU and she had gone home to Minnesota. Okay. And so we had hour long lessons where we would, we would do breathing. I remember one lesson where we did a breathing gym video for part oh, that's of the cool. lesson. And then we would do lots of singing and counting because mm-hmm. she tends to need to work on her ear training and uh, doesn't use her ear as much when she plays. So actually not having a horn in front of her was a really good exercise mm-hmm. for learning music. And we learned a, a piece of music. I think it was the Glier Nocturno. Um, simply singing and counting for about a month. Oh my. And then she actually bought a horn, which was great because <laughs> she'd been using a school horn. So now she has her own horn, which is, I'm really looking forward to working with her on that. And when she started actually playing the music, she could play it because oh, she'd wow. already learned it. She'd learned the notes and the rhythms. And now she was much more fluent at playing it than she would have been if she just kind of bumbled along and started from actually playing and learning the piece. So that was a really interesting 
No, that's really cool. And we, we are always trying to get our students to um, audiate and sing. And right. so that's, that's, that's a perfect life lesson there of putting that into practice. And you mentioned singing. So singing has always kind of been a big part of your musical identity, hasn't it? Yeah, it has been. I, I would say that I, my voice is incredibly out of shape these days. <laughs> the last time I truly sang was a recital that I gave a couple of years ago now. Um, which I really enjoyed because I got to work with a voice teacher who's one of my colleagues at PLU. And she was terrific. I really like her teaching. And she was able to tap into ways that I was able to connect with my voice in ways I hadn't really before, which seemed kind of incredible because I'm already, you know, my mid thirties, you'd think I would (laughs) know how to use my voice. Um, But that was really fun. But I haven't used my voice really since then as a singer. Mm -hmm. But because I, I do have that singing background, horn playing is a lot about singing. And I have all of my students sing, regardless of if they think they sound good. <laughs> and I always try to re- reassure them, I don't care if you sound terrible when you sing. It's all about pitch matching. Right. You, you yeah. have to be able to identify how a pitch is going to sound and match that pitch. And I found a little bit of a challenge with some um, adolescent students that I have who their voices are changing. Sure. Yeah. And so they can't quite find what octave mm. they, can, they can access. So we're kind of having to wait a little bit on that one until they really can find their voices and they can figure out the octave displacements. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, just I'll have them do counting and rhythm because counting is a big thing too. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. No, that's yeah. cool that you mentioned singing because I was I was thinking about this um, the other day was I was thinking about our podcast and the kinds of things we could talk about. And so you and I met, I'm trying to think of the date. It was a while oh, ago, yes. like 2003 or 2004, maybe? Well, I would have started at the UW in 2004. Okay. So University of Wisconsin-Madison, you were starting your master's degree. And I think I was and maybe my first year of your doctorate doctorate or something like that. No, I might've been finishing. I can't remember. It's all a long time ago. Anyway. Yeah, I know. But you were there though. I remember that. Yes. Yeah. And (laughs) it was a, we we can talk about UW Madison forever, but it it was a very special place and a very special time. And there was just a lot of great stuff happening. Um, I'm sure there still is, but I've kind of not been as, plugged into what's going on there recently as, as I was back then, obviously. But one thing I remember about you is you were such an awesome horn player, but you were always singing. Like, oh, yes. There, there, you always had something you were working on, you were singing it, or you were, it was a, a melody you were just singing. And so I think it's no surprise that your compositions are so lyrical and you have such an ear for melody. Um, but that that I you know that's one of my one of my first memories of of Gina Gilly is she was always singing something. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, it definitely was. And uh, speaking of composition, melody is a big part of whatever I write. And I'm I'm intrigued by games that you can play with pitches. And I haven't yet, I'm kind of interested in the idea of writing something that's either minimalism 
or a process piece that, that doesn't have to do so, so much with melody. But I, I have a feeling that there's going to be something melodic in there that even mm. if I'm trying not to be melodic, it's probably going to work its way in. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure I've, uh, I think I've played most of the things you've written for horn, if not all of them. Um, I'm actually playing, I, I've got a, with air quotes around it, a recital coming up. It's going to be mm. kind of a quasi pre-recorded, maybe live stream. It kind of depends. We lost some rehearsal time with the, the inclement weather. We had the hurricane that came through the state. So, but anyway, your, your reverie is going to be one of the pieces on, oh, cool. on the program. So I think, I don't think I've done, I've, I've not played some of the horn choir stuff you've written, but I've done pretty much the, all of the solo horn stuff and the horn and voice thing. So uh, I'm yeah. certainly no expert on your compositions, but I'm just a big fan. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it always helps for the composers out there who are listening. It is incredible to have colleagues who are supportive of your writing. And uh, James, you've actually done a lot for me <laughs> as a composer because you've commissioned some things to write. You've recorded some of my stuff. And that's how composers get ahead really that's how they kind of keep moving is they have people play their stuff they have people ask them to write stuff and so as composers we're, we're really grateful for all of the musicians who are really propelling us forward well it's 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 always been a pleasure and it's kind of i guess it was something i got into in graduate school because you know you know wisconsin is uh, is, was, and continues to be kind of a special place for new music. There's always a lot of the faculty, not just the composition faculty in that school of music, are composers themselves. Um, mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of that. It's kind of in the air. And so I really kind of got the bug for new music uh, there. And it's, it's really been something that's been a big part of my career and, and yours as well. Um, but no, for me, as someone who is at, at this stage of my life, I know I'm probably never going to be a composer. I mean, I, I have done composition projects and I, I recognize that I, you know, I'll never be Beethoven or something like that. And so I can, I can do like, you know, little things, but for me, that's for me, getting the creative bug out is, is working with someone who's truly creative, working with a composer or, you know, getting to have some kind of input on my end or doing arrangements and transcriptions. That's about, about as close as I'll probably ever get to being a real composer, but that's, that's good enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> and there's point. a place for all of that. There's a true art to arranging and transcribing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think so for sure. So you've got an article, which, and, and so this, this episode will probably be released in mid October. So by that, by this point, the October issue of the horn call will be out. And so everyone should be reading Gina's article on um, embouchure injury and a, a plan for recovery. Do you want to kind of give a little bit of an overview of that article and maybe hit some of the highlights? Sure. Essentially, the article is a personal anecdote, my own injury story, and little pieces of advice on how to go about recovering from my experience. So disclaimer that I don't know everything there is to know about recovery, but what I am hoping to achieve with this article is that it'll start to coalesce players 
into um, a larger conversation about injury and recovery so that there's a, a wider network of people who are talking about it and there's a wider network of resources so people know where to go if they find themselves in an injury situation. Uh, I've already talked with a few people who watched my video for the IHS mm -hmm, The virtual workshop, yeah. The virtual workshop. And what, I, what I've gotten from those conversations is that people feel pretty secluded. They feel mm -hmm. like not a lot of people talk about it. They don't know where to find the resources. There might be a lot out, out there about focal dystonia, which mm -hmm. is a different topic, but injury like uh, overuse injuries mm -hmm. is something that it's a little trickier to find information on. And there's probably good information out there, but it hasn't found its way into the mainstream yet. Yeah, it really, you would think by this point, there would be the equivalent of, you know, sports medicine. You'd right. think there would be the equivalent of, you know, a way to diagnose a particular injury, a, a prescription for, you know, therapies to both physical and mental, because you talk about the mental side of mm -hmm. dealing with an injury. And I think that's perhaps even more traumatic to some players right. than, than the physical side is, mm -hmm. and you, you know, you mentioned in your article, we identify so much with this hunk of metal that we stick on our face that, you know, when we have to take time off of it, that it, it can kind of mess with your, your, your mental side of things. Do you want to maybe speak to that just a little bit? Sure. The mental side is huge. Rehabilitating the physical aspect is one thing, but the mind is so involved in the process that it can complicate what you understand is going on with your recovery process and it can hinder it sometimes. And then when you are actually physically recovered, you have to make sure that your mind catches up with that mm -hmm. Be because your mind doesn't necessarily understand that you're through the woods in terms of the physical aspect of it. And it's still afraid of a lot of things and producing sound in certain ways. Uh, it'll just kind of get freaked out. And so mm -hmm. I think that the thing that I'm really dealing with now, there are some, some physical difficulties right now, and especially getting back after a period of rest, because summer plus the pandemic, I didn't sure. play hardly at all. So I'm, I'm getting back before the, the classes start up again. And honestly, it, it's not physically painful, but it's mentally painful mm -hmm. to, to work it back up because it's really discouraging. It doesn't really feel good. Um, my endurance is pretty terrible, but I practice consistently and little by little more each day. And it's starting to feel better, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Starting to get back to a place of, okay, I, I do enjoy this. I do enjoy playing horn. Um, but that's another mental aspect too, is, is if everything is really a struggle, when you're playing, then you start to wonder, where's my love of sure. this? Where's my love of playing? And, and it just gets to be a big quagmire. Lots and lots of aspects that you're, you're trying to answer questions. You're trying to mm -hmm. find your center. You're trying to find your love of right. things. Right. 
And, and all the while there's a self-worth component that, that usually comes in if we associate our selves with being a horn player or being a good horn player. Mm-hmm. And if that has trouble, if we start to experience trouble in that, then our sense of self and self-worth can really get thrown into crisis. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that's one of my big um, pieces of advice to people going through an injury is finding your self-worth or reaffirming your self-worth outside of playing. Mm-hmm. You could still be a player and you'll probably get back to being a pretty good player. But as a human being, you are more than you're playing. Right. And it takes sometimes a little bit to figure out what am I and and what am I that is more than a player? Yeah. And I I agree with that 100%. And, you know, you, you use the analogy in your article of like being in a cave and you're not, not quite sure how you got in there and it, you know, finding your way out can be tricky, but um, I think, you know, reaffirming one's identity is certainly a big part of, of finding that path in, into the light from being in that cave, for sure. That analogy was really helpful for me. And in fact, it was most helpful, helpful for me in the sense that it removed some of the anxiety of a timeline. Mm-hmm. And because I was self-imposing a timeline of when I needed to be healthy again, Right. And when I needed to be playing at the level I'd been playing before, it was self-imposed, but I also felt external stressors like colleagues and um, employers who would be asking, when are you going to get back to playing? Sure. Yeah. And I'm and, sure it's well-meaning for the most part, but they sure. don't realize like that's kind of, yeah. it's, that can be traumatic in and of itself, that pressure external and internal of, you know, I have to get back in shape. I have to get back where I was. Um, which is probably not that helpful. (laughs) (laughs) And so anyone out there who is talking to someone who is or has gone through an injury, uh, my piece of advice would be the question of how are you doing and where do you think you are in the process is not helpful. Mm -hmm. It might seem like it is and it it seems caring. It seems like it shows concern, but it's actually fairly stress-inducing. Yeah. So if you're hoping to be supportive to someone who's recovering from an injury, um, affirm wherever they are in the process, affirm that they are there. And um, I suppose you could tell them you're you're there to be supportive and Mm -hmm. um, bounce ideas off of, or I I think therapists can be helpful. Uh, I didn't actually go to see a therapist, uh, but if, if you're struggling with ideas about um, self-worth or confusion or these different things, and therapists are really good for being non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. And even someone who's not a musician, they can help you work through a lot of cognitive issues um, because there's a, there's a lot of brain functions and thoughts and ideas that are going on in our head with recovery that don't have to do with music. They really have to do with psychology. Right. Right. So even a non-musician therapist, I think would probably be helpful. Well, yeah. And perhaps even more so than someone who's 
intimately acquainted with, you know, the ins and outs of brass playing because they might tend to focus on those details that, as you said, might mm. not be that helpful to ask about. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, uh, how does your lip feel? I really right. Know. <laughs> yeah, that, that can that can be traumatic. So, no, um, yeah, that's that's all great stuff. Um, you mentioned not being judgmental about where you are and accepting who you are and where you are at that point in your playing. One, one really impactful um, demonstration of that I heard was uh, at the Kendall Betts Horn Camp. I'm trying to think what year it was that I went. I think it was 04, 2004 for the kids in the room. Uh, 2004. I actually went in 2003, so I just okay. missed you there. Well, so you know, was Herman Bauman there? He was there, yeah. Yeah, and so this was post him having stroke. a stroke, and he still played. And you know, it was it was very inspirational. It was yeah. you know this basically this person who had been at the pinnacle of a horn performance career, and he was still playing the horn. And um, you know, if someone that has suffered that kind of uh, of, of an injury uh, and and something that must've been psychological too, like just the, the trauma of not being able to play your horn or do anything really the same way that you had before. And he had the courage to just get up there and play something. And yeah. that, that was at the time I was like, wow, this is really special to, to see someone just get up there and do it and not worry about what they had sounded like before and what the judgment was going to be. And so, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I actually was almost more impressed that he had relearned two or three different languages. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he actually amazing. lost, I, I believe he lost the ability to speak. Wow. With his stroke. And so he had to relearn German, English, and what other else languages he spoke. That's amazing. Yeah. I, so it, it truly yeah. is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, Oh, you, uh, something you mentioned in your article, and this is, we could, this would be fun to get into. You mentioned the importance of having outside activities. Um, yeah. you know, things that are fun, but, you know, help, help you stay motivated in terms of, you know, being a whole person. And you've got some pretty interesting things in your, in your wheelhouse, right. That you, that you do outside of, of being a musician. Yeah, I like to find creative outlets. I, I like to pick probably the hardest thing that you can, you know, if, it, if it's an art form, I like to find the hardest form of that art form. Ah. <laughs> so one thing that I do just for fun, and I'm not super great at it, but it's, um, I think it's artistic and fun is aerial silks, which is a couple of things. It's really good for strength training. Mm -hmm. So if you are looking for something to build your upper body strength, um, aerial silks is terrific. Any kind of aerials is good for that. Um, but I also find it to be fairly expressive in terms of movement and shapes and expression through dance. Okay. So for someone who is kind of ignorant of it, like me, um, what would be sort of your elevator pitch description of what what is aerial what is aer silks? Aerial yeah. silks. Yeah. well i usually tell people you know cirque du soleil when the people are hanging on the fabric that comes down from the ceiling th those are aerial silks okay perfect yeah and then everyone goes oh yeah i know cirque du soleil <laughs> <laughs> how how did you get started in that 
Great question. Well, you probably remember Danielle Kane that yes. also yeah. was, was an undergrad when we were at the UW-Madison. And when she was, well, she had moved to Cincinnati, I think, after she mm -hmm. graduated and started, uh, got interested in pole dancing. Okay. Which um, is also another very interesting form of athleticism and and movement dance expression mm -hmm. and i would see videos of hers and i would think boy that is really interesting i was kind of fascinated by the flexibility that you needed mm -hmm. and the elegance that you could achieve and so i decided uh, I'd, I'd seen her videos for a couple of years and then i decided in 2012 one summer i was like well it's summertime and i'm going to do something crazy i'm going <laughs> to go take pole dance lessons so i did and I really enjoyed it. And I did pull for about two years before I broke my left wrist. Okay. <laughs> Which is a really bad thing to break if you want to do anything that requires you to hang on to something. I it's think I remember you for... telling me about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's I also bad for horn playing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was able to play my natural horn with a broken wrist. Um, so after I came back from my broken wrist, I, I thought, well, my studio was offering aerials and there was an instructor who was doing aerial hoop. So I started doing aerial hoop, which is very painful. And if you're going to do hoop, you're going to get a ton of bruises. Just letting you know. <laughs> so this is kind of like... That's... It's like a big circle of metal. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. And you, you use that as sort of the, the focus, the, I guess. Of, okay. Yeah, that's the apparatus that you okay. hang on and contort yourself around yeah i would imagine bruises would be <laughs> part yeah. and parcel of that and i did enjoy hoop but what i really wanted to do was the silks okay because i'd always thought that that they looked really neat and so then they started teaching silks lessons and so i i started taking the silks lessons i think it was in 2015. so i just kind of started my aerial silks journey and i've done a couple of performances i would like to be able to do more with it, but there's a balance issue in anybody's life. You've, you've sure. got your professional life, you've got your family life, you've got um, all of these other projects that are calling your name, mm -hmm. you know, practicing your horn, writing music, and then, oh yeah, by the way, maybe you need to go out and practice your silks. Right. So right. I haven't been able to progress to a level that's um highly you know any kind of high achievement on the silks but it still provides some impetus for staying flexible which is really important as you mm -hmm. age to try and stay flexible um, strength and some sort of artistic expression it seems to me that it's one of those things that's when it's done well it appears effortless right but if you if you didn't know what you were doing and you tried to do it, it would just like wreck you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm the older I get, the the less flexible I get, and I really will never be able to achieve some of those amazing moves on the silks. But one thing that uh, sometimes keeps me going is if you can do simple things incredibly elegantly, it's still impressive. And it's still beautiful. And it's it's like that with music too. You could mm -hmm. play the simplest piece of music, but if you play it with elegance and with skill and with immaculate control and expression, it's a beautiful thing.
yeah, like one note sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. That make, yeah. That's awesome. I, I know I've seen some video of, of you doing something like that. Maybe it was it like in your backyard or something like that. Yeah. And um, Christina Mesher Turner did a, a newsletter where she highlighted non oh, yeah. playing skills. Yeah. And um, I included a, a segment in there and I, I think I, I linked a video that was one to one of my performances. I'll, I'll have to, I'll post that link in the, um, the highlights from the show. If okay. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. If it, if it's okay with you, since it sure. was already published in the e-newsletter. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Just like in any performance, I always wish those things that had gone better, but. <laughs> well, but I'm sure just like in any <laughs> musical performance, like, to the casual observer, they're not yeah, going like, to notice. Wow, it, okay. Yeah, yeah I was, you're hanging was like, upside down. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the IHS, uh, you mentioned Christina Master Turner, who's the vice president of right. the IHS. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you. Just took over a new role with the International Horn Society, the editor of the online music sales. Do you want to mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that and maybe? Um, what your experience stepping into that role has been like? Sure. Darren Robbins was for, I think, 10 years, the editor for the online music sales mm -hmm. for the IHS. And I joined the team, the editorial team, um, maybe like a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. I think you joined about the same time I did. It's okay. Yeah, around the same time. And for anyone that doesn't know, and we just, if we're on the team, we just call it the OMS, the online music sales. Yeah. So this is a, I think it, it's continuing to grow based on the, the number of emails I'm seeing and the number of submissions. So mm -hmm. the history of this is it goes back to, there used to be an IHS press back when things were a little more, you know, conventional, less digital uh, distribution of, of uh, sheet music, but now it's an exclusively online um, distribution, uh, I guess, venue or hub for composers who want to write for the horn. And um, the, the, the really cool thing for any composers out there that might want to submit their works to, to Gina for the, the OMS is that the royalties are significantly better than most other publishing houses can do. It's 25%. And most publishing houses give you 10% if you're lucky. Yeah. So 25% right. is pretty darn good. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you're a composer, the whole world of publishing is a really interesting topic in mm -hmm. a way. Um, when I first got into publishing or when I first got into composing, I had no idea about the world of publishing. And the way I got my foot in the door was um, I had Jeff Snedeker introduce me to someone. Mm -hmm. And so I got in by way of networking. Right. Finding right. someone and um, knew nothing about contracts and what they meant. And if you sign, we're getting a little bit away from OMS. No, but, that's fine. No. Um, that's what that's what a podcast is for. Like little digressions, <laughs> yeah. and we'll eventually get back to where we were. Sure. So if you uh, get with a publisher and they want you to sign a full publishing contract, you are signing away the rights to your composition. So you do not own your music anymore. The mm -hmm. publisher owns it. Mm -hmm. And they can do with it as they see fit. They can change it. They usually don't. Mm -hmm. but they could, they could, um, you know, mix it up. They could send it off to, you know, be in a, a music video or something. Mm -hmm. um, 
And you get 10% of the sales price. Mm -hmm. Those are your royalties. Yeah. Those are your royalties. Yeah. So I really didn't know anything about that. And what I really wanted most was to have someone help me get my music out there. Because one thing that I, that I'm not great at and that I really don't have a lot of interest in is marketing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but a lot of composers nowadays will do self-marketing and we'll even do self-publishing. Self-publishing is becoming quite um, preferable for a lot of composers mm-hmm. because you get to keep all of the money right. that you sell. Uh, even people like Eric Whitaker, who is a very well-known choral composer, mm-hmm. self-publishes. Um, a colleague I have who's a choral composer, Brian Galante, he self-publishes. Mm-hmm. Jim Stevenson. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these people self-publish and I do have a select number of pieces on my website that I self-publish just because I haven't felt like giving them to a publisher, (laughs) but um, I do give some of my pieces that I think will probably be more um, popular. I give them to Brass Arts. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I like about Dave is that he does a lot of marketing that I would never do. This is Dave Weiner, yeah, the yeah. Uh, owner of Brass Arts Unlimited, yeah. Right, and so he goes to conferences and he takes my music and he has a well-maintained website mm-hmm. and he makes, he makes announcements about pieces as they come out. And so he has sold many more copies of my music than I would have if I just put it on my own personal Mm-hmm. website so i've gotten a fraction of the money from mm-hmm. selling that music but what's more important to me is that people are actually playing it right yeah so if i were trying to survive solely as a composer and if i was trying to survive on royalties then that would maybe be more problematic and i might want to think about getting into a real hardcore self-marketing publishing sure thing. But since I can afford to not be raking it in mm-hmm. with the royalties, it's, it is nice to have someone else be in charge of getting the music out there. So th- that's mm-hmm. one thing that if you're wondering, should I self-publish or should I go with a publisher? Um, with, with Brass Arts, I'm actually, I, I have a printing and distribution contract instead of a publishing contract. Ooh, talk, and, a, talk about that. What's the, yeah, the difference? I had no idea what the difference was at first, but um, when I first submitted my stuff to Dave, he's like, do you want a printing P&D or do you want a publishing? <laughs> and I was like, I have no idea what you're talking <laughs> about. What's the difference? And so it took like five emails for me to understand what this was. Um, but printing and distribution, it's really like what the OMS does. Okay. Where uh, you submit your materials to this particular publisher and they simply are in charge of printing it and distributing it basically getting it out there yeah. getting it out there so when people purchase it they get it out there and they're the intermediary mm-hmm. for the buying and selling um and i i pretty meticulously edit my scores so there's not a lot of editorial work that needs to be mm-hmm. done with them. If I did not, though, this, this would be a little bit complicated because there's a fee that's charged. If you, if you just uh, go with the, the P&D, then 
um, the publisher will say, well, I'm going to charge this much an hour for editing services. Or if they have to re-engrave it or, mm -hmm. yeah. Whereas if you sign the publishing contract, they are going to take care of everything. I see. Because it's theirs now, they own it. Right. So they're going to, they're going to give it the full treatment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. No, that is interesting. And yeah, I, I did kind of, I knew that the, the arrangement with the OMS was different than what like a traditional publisher would do, but no, yeah. that, that makes perfect sense. Oh, but the big difference is with the, with the printing and distributing, I own the copyright. I see. Okay. So I have full say over, you know, what happens with that music. Mm -hmm. And that was why, that was actually why I went printing and distributing is because I would not be giving away the copyright to my music. It would be like owning the rights to the master recording if, if you made a, a CD or a, an album of some kind. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're like me, there was nothing in your uh, undergrad or advanced degrees <laughs> that prepared you in any way for the marketing legal slash, you know, commercial side of, of the music business. No. It's really been learn as you go. Yes, 100%. Although I think that is changing. Like I think a lot of schools are starting to recognize in their curriculum yeah. that, hey, we might want to get something in there about, you know, marketing or how to build an effective website or how to use social media accurate, correctly to promote yourself. Because it's, you know, it was, it was put into you know, sharp relief with this COVID-19 pandemic that now everybody is producing video content and trying to carve out some space in the digital world. But I don't think this is going away in terms of now that the standard has been set with all everybody is, is doing more of this. I think when the pandemic uh, finally dies down, I think, I think there's still going to be a place for all of this stuff. Right. It is actually something that I'm, I teach composition now at PLU too. Oh, that's Pacific, awesome. Pacific Lutheran University, which is where I teach. Um, I'm in my second year of teaching composition. And this is something that we fit into our series of seminars. Okay. For our composition students is, is about publishing uh, and commissioning too. Mm -hmm. Because commissioning is a big thing for composers. That's how you and get paid. <laughs> that's how you get paid. And my commission structure has drastically changed over the years. Um, if you don't mind me sharing. No, please do. A little yeah. bit about. No. So the first time I was paid for writing a piece of music was in 2014. Actually, in 2012, I should have been paid to write a piece <laughs> of music, but I didn't know that I could ask to be paid. So I wrote it for free. What piece and was that? It, this was the Great Migration. Oh, oh the uh, uh, two horn horns duet. and piano. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, I didn't realize that I was supposed to set a fee. And so oh, I just my wrote goodness. it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the, the next time, um, Elliot Higgins, who mm -hmm. ran the Hummingbird camp, he asked me to write, because he'd heard my Two the Seasons, which was my first big piece that I wrote mm -hmm. for my dissertation. Uh, he asked me to write a brass trio. So that was the, the first brass trio that I wrote. And he paid me $100 per movement. And there were three movements. Okay. So I got $300 for 10 minutes of music. 
all you listening out there, that is peanuts. Yeah, that's pretty. I was gonna say <laughs> that's 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 pretty low, but it's pretty low. But I didn't know. I was like, oh, someone's paying me to write music. This is oh, so yeah. exciting. It's like when you get your first gig as a horn player. You know, if you yeah. get anything, you're you're thrilled. Right. And so uh, then the next person, John Hargreaves, commissioned me to write a horn quartet. And he paid me a pretty decent fee. He paid mm-hmm. me $2,000 to write, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's about 17-minute horn quartet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've, I've had some pretty good commissions along the way. But uh, about a year ago, I decided, you know what? I really need to work on my commission fee structure. Mm-hmm. And so I researched what some people were asking for and you have to think about ensemble size how many parts are you writing for duration of the piece so how many minutes of music and these are all things that you have to decide with your commissioner Mm -hmm. and then you create a fee structure based on those things so for example you might say uh, for an unaccompanied solo piece, I charge $100 per minute. Mm-hmm. That's just an example. Right. Uh, and then, of course, the larger the ensemble gets, the more per minute right. you, that you charge. Um, and if you think about it, I like to compare it to a musician playing in an orchestra. When I played in the Tacoma Symphony, we would make... Uh, about $120 per rehearsal mm-hmm, per, per service. Per service. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was about, there were three hour, no, two and a half hour services. Mm-hmm. So let's just say you, you make 50 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, I, I bet that a lot of um, private lessons teachers charge between 50 and 60. That seems to be the hour. going rate now. Yeah. 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 And that, that's, you know, that's an hour of honest work. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you're composing, you spend hours of right. honest work. And so just to give people an idea of when they're commissioning, think about what is the time of the composer worth? Mm-hmm. And um, if you like this person's music, then that is an affirmation that you are telling them, I, I know your, your time is worth this much money. Yeah, that so makes sense. That was a big sort of revelation or change in my thinking mm-hmm. when it wasn't just, oh, I'm, I'm doing this because I like to or because someone asked me, that it is honest work and it's very creative work and it's mm-hmm. also difficult. There's a lot of problem solving that mm-hmm. goes into it. Um, so I, I never really thought of it as a performer from that perspective, I might think like, whoa, $2,000 for a new piece of music. That's a lot of money. But if you break it all down, you realize, well, that's pretty reasonable actually. Right. On a per hour, you know, amount of work put in. Um, Now, is there for a new composer who's looking to, to do what you did and and take a little more professionalized approach to their fee structure, where can they go for, um, help and in terms of you know is there anything online or any, Ooh, any books about that sort of thing um, I went to composers who I had gotten to know mm-hmm. I didn't know them well mm-hmm. but um, I figured this person has a similar um, investment in composing for example there there's a, a man who taught at 
the, of Washington State University, a bassoon player, Ryan mm-hmm. Hare. And uh, he actually recently retired from teaching because he wanted to get into composition oh, full time. Okay. But he was a bassoon player, bassoon teacher. That was mm-hmm. most of his identity for a long time. But then he really got interested in composing. Okay. And I thought, well, you know, I find myself in a similar place. Mm-hmm. And so I'll ask him what his fee structure is because it seems like maybe I could do something that's comparable. Right. right. So I looked for, for people who I thought that um, their background in composing or what they were doing with composing was kind of similar to what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I just asked them What's what their fee, fee what their fee structures were and then um, crafted mine around that. Mm-hmm. Something I, I notice about your compositional style is that you work, you work really hard and the, the pieces are always really well crafted and you take a lot of care in like doing research. Like you mentioned that brass trio that you uh, were commissioned by Elliot Higgins to write. Um, one of the movements is a tango, if I remember correctly. Right. right? And yeah. I think I remember you telling me like, I'd never written a tango before, so I did research on how tangos were composed. So I think that's that's really cool. Um, and then your your sonata for horn and piano that uh, Steve Cohen commissioned, like each movement is basically in a different style, right? Yeah. And you know, it's it's your ability to to emulate those styles while still keeping your own voice. Um, you know. I'm, I'm not a music theorist or a musicologist or anything like that, but to my ear and to my, um, my sense of things, you, you did it really well. Do you want to talk about how, how that became a part of, of what you do when you compose? Not that that's, that's not everything you do as a composer, but certainly in those pieces, it struck me that, oh, hey, she's, she's writing in this French style, but it's still Gina's voice, but it's, I, can <laughs> tell it's, I can tell it's French or I can tell this is, uh-huh. you know, whatever, so... Yeah, I think a really important tool for composers is score study. Okay. And if I want to write in a certain style, I go find a score by a composer that I admire Mm -hmm. and a piece that's fairly simple. I I try and select something of theirs that isn't crazy, but something I can digest. Mm -hmm. And so um, I looked at uh, Foray Mm -hmm. scores and um, sometimes I'll look at Debussy if I want to okay. try and, and write something kind of French impressionist. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime I'm wanting to write in a certain style, I just, I go find a score mm. that is from that particular style. And I, I try and dissect what's happening here. How are the parts fitting together? What's the structure of the tonal language? What's mm-hmm. the structure of the rhythmic language? And then I start fitting my own ideas together. Mm. But the funny thing is, I cannot get away from my own voice. <laughs> so, <laughs> it goes back to that earlier story we were talking yeah. about. Yeah. So if, if I try and write something in a particular style, it's going to sound like me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually fascinating about composition. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that... You like to do this too, where you'll, you'll turn on the radio and you'll listen to a few seconds or a minute of what's happening on the classical station and you'll say, okay, name that composer. Oh yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's the music it, history teacher. In yeah. The, yeah, but isn't it incredible though that, we, that that's a thing? That yeah. composers yeah. 
just sound like themselves. Yeah. It's as and distinct as the sound of your speaking voice or the sound of your voice on an instrument. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Even though we're using all the same notes, we're using a lot of the same instruments. Mm -hmm. You can just tell what the way yeah. that someone speaks and the, the way they write music, who it is. Yeah. And it's, I, I would imagine that it's similar to, you know, someone who deals with the written word, you know, you begin by yeah. basically just reading a lot and finding mm -hmm. the authors that you, that you respect or that you enjoy, or you find something about them that pulls you in as a reader. And then you kind of just imitate them for a while. And then at yeah. some point you have enough experience, you have enough, you know, theory and knowledge of it under your belt that your own voice gets in there without you necessarily having to worry too much about it. Right. And sometimes I, I try and get away from my own voice, but it never works. <laughs> <laughs> it always comes back. Well, no, I think that that is the sign of a, of a composer, you know, someone who is comfortable with their style and is not, you know, necessarily trying to imitate something else. You're, you're, you're writing the way you write. And even when you imitate something else, your, your voice comes through. So I think there's, you know, there's a life lesson in there. <laughs> Somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Stay true to yourself. No matter yeah, what. I th one of the big fears I have about it as a composer is that it will sound too simplistic or too uh, repetitive or too predictable. Hmm. Those are the kinds of things that as a composer, I, I worry about when I'm writing. And so mm -hmm. I usually try and play little rhythm games or, you know, twist of harmony games mm -hmm. such that it, those things don't happen. But what's funny about that is, is when you play those games, you actually end up doing some things that make you sound like you like, particular mm -hmm. ways that you move in your harmony. Um, what's funny is I'll listen to something of mine and I'll go, oh, I did that same thing in this other piece. Ah. <laughs> and I didn't remember it or didn't realize it, but now I realize, or I'll sing a melody, just make up a melody and sing it. And then I'll, I'll realize, oh, I was trying to be really unique in the direction I went with that melody, mm -hmm. but I realized that I did I did something that I is a habit of mine. Mm -hmm. And so composers are usually on the lookout for their habits, That's whether cool. they want to maintain those habits or whether they want to kind of break away from those habits. Oh, that's really cool. Um, I want to talk a little bit about a project you were involved in that kind of ties a lot of these things together. The, um, recovering from an injury and then your interest in, in, in I mean, not just an interest, you know, your, your, profession as a composer, um, the Phoenix Project. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was a terrific project that Ashley Goldbrunson um, did for her doctorate, I believe. Okay. And she has experienced focal dystonia. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to put together a project where she commissioned different composers to write pieces for players who struggle with focal dystonia and or injury issues mm -hmm. and she had heard that i'd had an injury oh no she had been at a northwest horn symposium okay actually and uh i mentioned i wasn't really playing because i was injured and so we had a conversation together and she shared some of her knowledge that she learned from jan kagerice okay yeah a real, real big embouchure rehabilitator um so since ashley knew that i was dealing with this injury situation 
and she also knew that I was a composer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was why she reached out to me to be a part of this particular project to write music uh, for players with focal dystonia that's very approachable. And I think mm-hmm. it was absolutely terrific project um, because it can be challenging to find music that's accessible mm-hmm. if you have playing limitations. And so the piece that I wrote had several parameters Mm-hmm. that I followed so that it would be accessible to people who were either injured or coming back from injury, mm-hmm. who had focal dystonia, or maybe even people with braces. Right, yeah. Because yeah. You're, when you get those braces on, your range can diminish. Mm-hmm. And this is <laughs> your, no your reverie for horn and piano. Yeah, this right? is reverie for horn and piano. And so um, it, the range is somewhat limited. It doesn't go above an F. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when it does go up into that range a couple of times, it is optional. Mm-hmm. So people can make the choice. There are a lot of slurs. So mm-hmm. uh, when you're recovering from both an injury and focal dystonia, the tongue can be disruptive mm. okay. sometimes. So slurring things is a, is a much easier way to produce sound. Um, exactness of attacks can be tricky. So there's some flexibility in that. Um, Yeah, so all of these different uh, parameters, but at the same time, making it musical and making it interesting and fun to play. Mm -hmm. And so I took the piece through, I called it Reverie because I wanted to signify this journey through kind of a daydream, different different components of what a daydream might consist of. So it's kind of dreamy at the beginning and uh, it gets into different little snapshots of, mm-hmm. um, gets a little bit fiery at one point. So a person can explore a diverse way of, of expressions mm-hmm. within the musical yeah. style. You don't have to stay in one thing. Um, and I, I really do hope that it's a piece f- for people to pick up if, they have some of those playing limitations and mm-hmm. um, so I'm really hoping it can fit that that little um, niche the intention that it was written for and uh, let just let people know that it's out there in, in case yeah like, you know I need uh, repertoire to play but I've got these things that are issues right now mm-hmm. no it's a great piece and I, I mean um, I've I don't want to say I've stolen it, but I'm not using it for necessarily that purpose. I just thought it was a cool piece. I was, you know, looking for something to, um, you know, go on the second half of a recital program and, and looking for something lyrical to kind of fill out the, the style on the, the, the program. And I knew that you had written this piece because I had heard about it when, when it was performed, uh, a premiered, I think, I think Ashley played the premiere at a, Mm -hmm. at a Northwest horn workshop. So I had listened to that. Yeah, I listened to that recording. I was like, hey, this is this is a cool piece. I, I just want to play it. Um, so, you know, I would certainly support anyone that's going through that process to check out uh, Gina's Reverie, but also anybody that just wants a really beautiful piece to play. Um, it's about eight minutes or so. It's it's a substantial piece. One it's movement. about it's about 10 minutes, okay. although Ashley's recording is 12. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it can be played a little can, bit faster. Than there's that. some flexibility, though, which is yeah. nice, to, nice to have. And it, I, I always am looking for pieces that I could recommend to students. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that, that piece certainly fits that bill of this would be a substantial piece on a recital for like an undergrad, but depending on the player and their abilities, it, it could, it would be something that a, a younger player or a player without, you know, a huge range could, could play, but there's still plenty to be learned from it. So, um, yeah. no, I think, I think it's, it's certainly a piece to, to check out. Just beware, the piano part is way harder than the horn part. <laughs> so your like pianist is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> your pianist is going to love me in some places. <laughs> no, the recording, go check it out. Uh, I think if you just Google Gina Gilly or YouTube search Gina Gilly uh, Reverie for horn and piano, it'll pop right up. Pop right up. Ashley's yeah. uh, recording of it is, is fantastic. So that's, that's a really good introduction to the piece. Um, uh, I, I could keep talking to you for a really long time, Gina. You know, we're, we're old friends and this has been fantastic. Um, we've been corresponding quite a bit via mm-hmm. email, but it's nice to talk to you Zoom to Zoom <laughs> or screen to screen. Um, do you want to talk about any upcoming projects you have? Maybe it's kind of a good way to, to close out our discussion sure. today. Yeah. Uh, this summer, I spent a lot of time composing and I wrote a piece for trombone, horn, and piano, Ooh. which was commissioned by Jason Johnston from the University of Idaho. Okay, yeah. And I think it's kind of a fun piece. It was made to be an opener, so okay. it's pretty peppy, exciting little piece. Um, I'm also writing a, uh, a trombone, trombone, I know, <laughs> octet for Jeremy Marks. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He, he's doing a commissioning project for his studio. Oh, cool. And uh, I also need to write a horn ensemble piece. I started and nearly completed a horn octet in January. Okay. But I'm not like wild about it. Mm. And so I think I might just want to start over. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've got a few ideas I'm kicking around and um, I just recently watched a composer's uh, seminar thing that Eric Whitaker did with the King Singers because the King mm-hmm. Singers are doing a composition contest and they're having workshops. Oh. And when Eric Whitaker was talking, he mentioned an orchestral piece he had written called Deep Field, okay. which is a orchestral piece that's paired with images from the Hubble telescope but also other nasa images Mm -hmm. of space and it is incredibly moving okay and for whatever reason wherever i am right now in my life whenever it gets to the climax i I get chills and i get tears oh my goodness yeah whatever it is it's incredibly moving to me just the vastness of space and the sonorities coming out of the orchestra i'll have to check incredible yeah yeah so um, that's kind of a sound that's going on in my head right now. I, I'm kind of curious to see if I could make something happen mm-hmm. with a horn ensemble, kind of like that, but uh, not even close because I don't have strings. <laughs> <laughs> no, that sounds awesome. And uh, thank you so much for talking with me today, Gina. And uh, good luck with all of your awesome projects coming up. Thank you. Thanks, James. Thank you.